Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Pat Michaels. I run the Center for the Study of Science at the Cato Institute, and I'd like to welcome you uh, to a Hill briefing by Dr. Ed Calabrese from the University of Massachusetts uh, on something very important that has been sort of working its way through a scientific literature largely generated by Ed, um, and that is systematic problems with the way we regulate things uh, that affect our lives a great deal. To set the stage for this for a minute, let me just think about, if you think about what's outside that window, <clears throat> it's sunlight. If you don't get any sunlight, you will die. You'll be unable to synthesize vitamin D. However, if you go out and get yourself too much sunlight, you'll either die of dehydration or today exposure, uh, or in the long term, your, your risk of skin cancer will be increased. So clearly, there's an optimal dose for sunlight. The first photons of solar energy that strike you are hardly dangerous. They're electromagnetic radiation. But the regulatory model that we have says the first photon of energy is dangerous. So that, that's what Ed does, and, and he's going to give us a very good talk. Before I introduce him, I want to take uh, my prerogative. I am a PhD climatologist, and because of the President's last State of the Union message in which he devoted more words to global warming than any other single substantive subject, I suspect it's going to come up tonight in the context of it being very, very cold. And he's going to, to claim that extreme weather events such as this cold are related to global warming. Uh, that is a result of a paper published a few years ago, a modeling paper, which turns out to be a very testable hypothesis, tested by Elizabeth Barnes in Geophysical Research Letters twice now, one paper last year, one paper this year, and it just doesn't work. So he's not giving you the full story. You're not going to get the full story. Now we're going to get the full story on the regulatory paradigm for ionizing radiation from Ed Calabrese from the University of Massachusetts. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pat. Um, my story today is, uh, I find it a problem story, and it's, it's not really a story that I... Ed, you might want to use the mic because we're going to, sure. we're going to video you. That I, it's not a story that I, I set forth to do. It's kind of a story that I stumbled upon. In my work on uh, dose-response relationships, um, Take a look at there. Are, this story is is really a human drama, it's much less about me than about these people here. The key players in this in this drama are Herman Muller, that we see here, Nobel Prize winner, uh, brilliant, extraordinary person, um, and he's the villain. Okay, in my opinion. <laughs> And we see what I actually see him uh, getting awarded his Nobel Prize. The image doesn't show up well here, but he wins the Nobel Prize in 1946 for being the first to discover that ionizing radiation caused mutations. And he did this in um, um, fruit flies, male fruit flies. Over here we see his uh, collaborator, uh, another great geneticist, I consider also part of the, um, the villain side. Um, and this is Kurt Stern, a very distinguished professor of genetics at Rochester, then at Cal Berkeley, now very famous people, esteemed people who are truly beloved by um, 
by their society. And uh, me coming into it saying that, um, that their heroes really uh, were not um, as pure as they thought. And of course, we have a third person here uh, in the, with the tie, Ernst Kasperi, who also was a very famous um, geneticist and, and who basically gets uh, suckered into a, a, uh, a challenging moral dilemma and you can decide whether, when tested, he passes or fails. And of course, we need the presence uh, of a young, attractive female researcher who is very distinguished herself, um, Delta Uphoff. And these are the four characters that are going to play out in this, uh, in this story. As it turns out, you have to push yourself back to um, uh, the Manhattan Project. And it's uh, the 1940s. The, World War II was going on, we're trying to go forth and produce the bomb. And the uh, Atomic Energy Commission gives a grant to the University of Rochester. The principal investigator is Kurt Stern, and his job is to try to figure out how does radiation affect the genome? What is the nature of the dose response in the low dose zone? He's an expert with fruit flies, they're a really good model, and he decides to use fruit flies. So he gets a very good team to work with him. And he goes forth on the first study and uh, with a guy whose name is Warren Spencer. <clears throat> and Spencer uh, shows that the dose response with uh, acute exposure to x-rays appeared to be linear. That is, uh, the, the response was proportionate to the dose. And this was very um, supportive of the belief that Stern had and that others of his radiation genetics community had. They, they strongly believed, based upon work that Muller uh, had and his students had shown in the 30s, that the dose-response relationship was linear for radiation and mutation. The problem that Muller had at that time is that, is that the linear dose-response was not the dose-response in vogue or the dose-response it was the default or the paradigm. It was really the, the threshold dose response was the dominant one within the medical community and the emerging regulatory community within this country and in other countries. And Muller was pushing very hard to challenge this uh, threshold interpretation. And Muller was on a series of very influential committees. And you know, as committees go, um, you have to have the votes to win. And Muller, who advocated for a switch from a threshold to a linear model, was always outvoted, always outvoted, always frustrated. And, and he always made his case, and it just didn't seem to work. The medical people on these committees were dominant to uh, his limited radiation genetics perspective. So now, basically, with the biggest and strongest studies going forth tied into the Manhattan Project, they got a major um, link in, in what will be um, an argument that will be brought back to try to support now a switch to linearity. But the acute study wasn't really that important because it was acute and meant that they gave a massive doses in a very short period of time. So they, they had to go and look at the effects of radiation uh, titrated out in a chronic fashion, the way we would tend to be exposed, very, very low doses over time. So they did the same type of study, the same model, with improved methods and, and equipment and looked at it, really it was about a 13,000-fold lower dose. The investigator was Ernst Kasperi, that third guy with the tie, 
And Ernst comes in and he sees his boss, which happens to be Kurt Stern, and says, Professor Stern, um, I didn't get a linear dose response. I got a threshold in this chronic study. It's not what Stern wanted to hear. It's not what actually Muller wanted to hear. Muller was a paid consultant to this project. Muller then was at Amherst College, um, being a professor of biology there at that time, and he would come up and consult. And I have all his correspondence with Stern on the matter. Well, the key thing is when Kasperi goes in, he tells the boss what he doesn't want to hear. Stern rejected uh, his interpretation. And he says that the reason why he didn't get this uh, linear dose response is that your control group, that to which you compare the treatment groups to, was artificially high. And because it was artificially high, you missed the linearity perspective and you saw a, a threshold. And so your control group was screwed up. So I'll give credit to Kasperi. He dug in. He fought back, he went into the literature, and he came up with a number of studies that show that his control group actually was just like other control groups and was not aberrant. It was, it was normal. And so he then goes and he presents his stuff to uh, Muller, uh, to Stern rather, and Stern backs, backs down. And so they take this paper, and this is now the strongest study to date, very strongest, most profoundly detailed, lowest dose rate ever studied. And they're really trying to get to that answer. What is the nature of the dose response in the low dose zone? And it shows a threshold. Uh, now, <clears throat> what happened was they sent it to Muller. And Muller has just been, uh, just been announced that he was going to win the Nobel Prize uh, and be awarded uh, the Nobel Prize on December 12th over in Sweden. And for his work in 1927, which showed that x-rays could, could cause mutation. So 19 years later, he's going to get the Nobel Prize. And so <clears throat> Stern sends him a letter and says, can you review this work by Kasperi? It's really important. And he says, okay, send it to me. And so he sends it. And then on November 12th, 1946, Muller sends a letter back to Stern saying, I've read this Kasperi report. It's extremely important. It challenges our basic beliefs. It's, it's showing that this linearity relationship doesn't hold. This is in the chronic area. This is very significant. Casperi um, uh, is a good researcher. I don't want to challenge him, but this work has to be, has to be replicated. This is, this is a significant thing. Now, he provided the, the fruit flies for this study. He reviewed, you know, he designed the help design the study. He was very involved in this. So he then goes to Stockholm <clears throat> and he makes his talk. And in his presentation to the distinguished audience, I'm not sure what you would do, but this is what Muller did. Muller stands up in front of the group and he absolutely positively states that there is no possibility to believe in a threshold. The threshold model that we have believed in for so many years, it was believed and used in our medical and regulatory approaches is wrong. There's no basis for it. It has to be rejected and we essentially have to go to a linear dose response. He said this after, in fact, having seen the strongest study to date, the most detailed um, research that, that was specifically designed to answer this question. And, and he goes and he says, now I can understand if he, if he said, well, um, I don't believe in a threshold, I believe in linearity. Uh, you know, maybe it has to be studied more, it's controversial, let's do better studies. But to actually come out and say there is absolutely no possibility uh, and when, 
he's recommending in writing the funds should be developed to actually um, test this possibility further. He actually was very deceptive in his comments at his Nobel Prize lecture. Now, an interesting thing that went on is that uh, within the course of this thing, uh, he then provides uh, two or three or four weeks later a very detailed review of this paper, uh, and he reasserts that he could not find any scientific thing the matter with it, and that what he recommends again is that it be replicated. But in public, he goes forth saying there's no possibility of threshold. You have to go linear. And actually, in the paper that they got published, you won't believe this, but if you read the discussion, you find the entire discussion is um, why you shouldn't accept the Kasperi data. Uh, and you can't accept it until, in fact, you try to figure out why it differed from this acute study. And, and there are 25 or 6, 25 to 30 methodological differences between the two, acute study and the chronic study. Why one got linear, why one got threshold. Uh, it's never been resolved, but they said you, in the write-up that, that you can't actually accept the Casperi data until otherwise. And, and I'd have to tell you that these papers were published in the Journal of Genetics. Now, how could a journal accept a paper, in fact, um, when the authors say, don't accept our data until we can try to figure out why it differs from a study that you could never actually resolve that difference of? Well, Kurt Stern was the editor of Genetics, and he controlled the publication, and those papers were never sent out for peer review. Now, as it turns out, what we have is we have a situation where Muller comes back from his Nobel Prize, in which I believe he actually lied. And then you have um, a situation in which um, they did try to replicate the study. And that's where Delta Uphoff's picture comes in, because Delta tried to replicate the work. And when she replicated his work, that's Kasperi's work, what she found was that her control, groups, uh, control group was aberrantly low. And so what happened next was, in fact, uh, they wrote to Muller, and Muller provided all his data because he was very much into trying to figure out uh, the normal frequency of mutation in the fruit fly. And through a variety of exchanges, it, as it turns out, all his data and other published data all supported Kasperi's findings again, and that Delta's data were actually uh, aberrantly low. And so when they wrote up her result, what happened was that in the write-up that became classified with the AEC, they claimed that the data were uninterpretable because of aberrantly low controls due to investigator bias in their write-ups. Well, as it turns out, she does a, a second experiment, gets another aberrantly low control group, gets the same criticism. She then does a third experiment, the final one, in which the low-dose response uh, the control group responded normally, but the response, which did show mutation, was three or four-fold greater than a linear response and suggested, again, aberrant data. And uh, the whole uh, issue was, was very questionable what her findings were. Becomes very interesting now that Stern takes the initial acute study, the Casperi uh, issue on the, 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 the threshold, and then these three delta up-off experiments wraps them into one study, he, at that point, he uh, goes back to the false criticism that Kasperi had a high control. 
He then ignores that he had discounted the low control for the delta up off, and when you do that, he gets a linear relationship. The paper was published as a one-page note in the Journal of Science, very prestigious journal, no methodology to back up, no supporting data to back up. He claims that he will provide all that in a subsequent paper, which he never does. As it turns out, the only papers that are, that are really um, cited in the literature going forward are the original acute data and the one-page note. Those are the papers that then go forward into the National Academy of Sciences' first ever committee on biological effects of atomic radiation in 1955. And those are the studies that are actually used to support the <coughs> acceptance of a linear dose response. In between the Nobel Prize and this bear meeting, there are multiple reports in the literature, believe it or not, of, uh, <coughs> of Herman Muller saying, well, we can't accept the Kasperi data because, because his control group was, was aberrantly high. Uh, now, how could Kurt Stern, I mean, how could Muller actually do this when, in fact, all Muller's data supported his? Muller's data were called in to actually resolve the difference and, and essentially um, contradict Muller in these repeated statements. Uh, Kasperi didn't have the courage to stand up to Muller during the early 1950s. What, the story that I'm telling you here is that Stern and Muller were advocating very strongly to, for a dose-response revolution. And the dose-response revolution was to switch from a threshold to a linear model. And, and, and actually what they did was that they lied at a Nobel Prize, they lied in, um, in subsequent issues where they, where they confused, over, uh, confused the issue over Kasperi's work, which is actually very read readily refutable, and then didn't provide the backup data on the Delta Uff, Uphoff report and never reported to the readers of science that they had found her data less than a year before totally uninterpretable. And none of the people on the first ever National Academy of Sciences ever dug into these details that I'm sharing with you today. And, and in fact, what happened is that um, the National Academy was, was brought together in 1955, and they met for a year, and they came up with a profound recommendation, which was we now have to switch to a linear dose-response relationship. They only cited the work of uh, of uh, the, uh, the linear acute and the delta Uphoff work. When they testified at congressional hearings in 1957, four or five of them went and testified, the only papers that they cited were the ones actually um, that, um, that were the most inappropriate ones to cite. And, and when you go and you look at the transcripts of this NAS committee in 55, what you really find is that they never actually discussed uh, uh, the, or battled out over linearity or threshold. Uh, linearity had already been decided um, because now they had the votes. They actually had um, the proportion of Muller and Stern followers. And so <clears throat> what I have done in a series of papers that are available to you uh, here today is to try to document, in fact, that the basis of the switch to a linear dose-response relationship 
was based upon ideologically oriented science led by kings in the field, Nobel Prize winner and, and somebody very close to a Nobel Prize winner, Kurt Stern, and, and some of their close followers. And, and after many years of trying to push their agenda, they actually did get it through. And it took 60 years until today, essentially, last couple years, for somebody to dig into the bowels of the literature and to piece these little pieces together. And that's what I'm trying to share with you today, and that's what these papers have done. Now, the, um, and, and, and the interesting thing is that, is that their initial recommendation was, was simply that lin we want linearity applied to genetic risks. But within one year, uh, other national committees and international committees generalized this linearity for radiation to somatic cells. That meant it could be applied to cancer risk assessment. When the fast forward 20 years, or thereabouts, 1977, when the U.S. Uh, National uh, Academy of Sciences Safe Drinking Water Committee came out with recommendations to EPA on uh, chemical carcinogens, they reached way back to this Bear One Committee and they accepted its recommendations for how to regulate and to assess risk, really, to, for chemical carcinogens. And they based it upon the radiation model uh, of the Bear One Committee, which was, as I said just previously, was fraudulently put together. And that is what has transpired ever since 1977 to the present time. And so when you have LNT, what they call it, linear no threshold, it really was born out of um, deception by the leaders of our radiation genetics community who manipulated the National Academy of Sciences. They provided inadequate um, uh, oversight to what they did. And when you uh, then see this, you know, what grew out of this but our regulatory apparatus today. And you might want to say, well, well maybe Muller was right. Let's take a look at the, uh, uh, some data here. I'll just show you some pictures. If, um, the little dose-response relationships. Okay, we're really uh, looking at a, a linear dose-response model. That's the straight line up here. Sorry, uh, I can get a little laser pointer here. If we take a look at the linear dose-response, this is what Muller was advocating for, that the risk is proportionate to dose. There's no, no area where you don't have some risk. The threshold model, which was the medical model, uh, has uh, no risk below a threshold, and then risk goes on. Now, this model here is what I tend to study, this hormetic model, which is a J-shaped model, which suggests that the risk actually goes down as the dose goes lower and risk increases as you go higher. I now show you some data on some large studies. This is a study out of Oak Ridge. It's uh, looking at gamma rays on mouse lung tumors, call them adenomas. And we're looking at males and females. Each triangle or box has about 500 to 750 animals. Big studies. You can see in this low-dose range, the responses are below that of the control group, which was essentially normalized and shown on this dashed line. They go down by about 30 to 40 percent, and then the responses start to go up. If the linear model was correct, you should see a linear dose response being forced right back to 100. The linear model in this situation is, is absolutely wrong. You have over here a study looking at, a Japanese study, looking at lifespan in this uh, 
um, mouse model. It's a diabetes-oriented model. What I'm trying to show you here is the treated group in terms of all longevity is the little red dot, and the darker one is the control. At 90 weeks, you can see that 40% of the controls are alive, but 70% of, of the irradiated are alive. They end up living about 40% longer if you are irradiated. Now at this rate of irradiation, 0.65 milligrade per hour for the whole life, that's about 60 times background of what we are exposed to. It's not a low dose from, in our conventional way of thinking. Um, and these mice, and, and, and it's, it isn't that this is an isolated study. This is just one example of many that I could show you. Over here, this is a picture of um, the representative mice from this study. Now, this is the control group. It's, uh, it's scrawny, it's lost its hair, it's haggard. In all honesty, it reminds me of my poor dad when he was about 95 years old and just about ready to die. He lived a long and good life but life had taken its toll on, on, on my father. Um, this little animal over here is just as old as this one, except that's the irradiated one. When I looked at that, I said, give me some. And, and it's actually, it's, it's robust, it's plump. It, this picture isn't quite short. The skin is very, very shiny. It's very, very healthy. They go on to live about 40, 45% longer than, than the control group. I can tell you, if, if I worked for a drug company, I'd say, what is that? What, you know, uh, Costa Rican rainforest, did they find that drug that that, because we could really enhance the health of the society. Well, actually what it is, is it's ionizing radiation that that, that that animal got. It's actually pretty amazing. These are showing that linearity is, is not able to explain what's going on, it's actually it's actually a flawed idea. This is Muller's model. Now, Muller's looking at mutation in the fruit fly, looking at the gonads of males, actually. But he uses very high doses. And at very high doses, yes, he gets mutation. And it's linear, and it's pretty extreme. He gets it. However, if Muller wanted a second Nobel Prize, he could have probably lowered the dose. And so what went on at low doses, rather just reporting on what went on at high doses. And you can see that actually, at low doses, the incidence of the mutation goes below the background or below what the control group shows. It supports a hormetic dose response, what I worked at. Uh, this is a DDT. Now, DDT is banned in this country because it causes liver cancer. And Japanese investigators went in and they looked at uh, liver foci, which is a good predictor of liver cancer, using the same uh, rat that we use in this country, the Fisher 344 in the National Toxicology Program. High doses, yes, this will produce liver cancer, but they drew the doses down, and actually, it causes a hormetic dose response. It actually reduces the risk, the biphasic dose response. The dose determines the poison here. Uh, linearity is not explaining what goes on. Our regulations our regulations are saying you can draw the line right through this. And it actually is giving uh, an overestimation of risk. It really adversely affects policy and uh, has international uh, implications, which are huge. FDA, a number of years ago, uh, decided they wanted to take the bull by the horns. And they wanted <coughs> to get, well, what is the nature of the dose response in the low dose? zone for carcinogen. So they did a mega mouse study. 
They took 24,000 mice, the largest rodent study ever, and they basically wanted to see what the dose response was in the low dose zone. They knew that it would cause bladder cancer at high doses, so they chose that model. But when they looked at the low doses, it actually didn't show linearity at all. It showed this J shape again in the largest study ever to date. These, and I have thousands and thousands and thousands of other examples of this, uh, where the, um, the predictions of Muller were based upon <coughs> deception and a lie actually are not supported when scientists go back in and look at it. Uh, and yet our regulatory agencies are essentially uh, wedded to this. And I'll just kind of wrap it up with a few conclusions for you now. So LNT um, became public policy based upon, in my opinion, deceptive actions of leading radiation geneticists. And these people, you know, Muller, and Stern are, are the people. Now the talk that I'm really giving to you today, I've, I've actually given this my version of an academic talk at, at different groups. And, and I, went, I was invited to actually defend myself to the UK Society of uh, essentially radiation geneticists over in the Swansea uh, last summer. And uh, I mean, it, it's very difficult to go in and say, uh, that the person that created your field and that, is, that you name all your scholarships after was essentially fundamentally deceptive and led you down this, this path. Um, and, and I have sent some of my papers, I sent my initial paper claiming that there was ideology of the science on Muller and his deception. I sent it to genetics because Muller and Stern were the, were the editors of that and they refused to send my paper up for publication. Consideration. They just were not going to do it. I actually sent a paper to Mutation Research, a next generation paper, so to speak. They pulled their, their audience, their, their, their review board, and they would not send it up. There's uh, uh, there are other stories I can tell you about, but the, the, uh, it's very difficult to go into a group and to make the assertions that I'm making when those people are treated like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, it's very difficult. Uh, and, and without telling you all the, the, showing you all the scars that I have as a result of it, um, over here, um, the NAS Bear One Committee adopted the scientific misrepresentations and, uh, and recommended that the LNT model be used for risk assessment. And actually, this recommendation changed the course of cancer risk assessment for radiation and chemicals to the present. It's the most significant recommendation, I believe, in the history of risk assessment. And it was wrong. So, in my opinion, uh, LNT is flawed in theory and flawed in practice. There are numerous studies, thousands of studies, actually, uh, that are inconsistent with the LNT. How many inconsistent studies do you need to, to be self-reflective on maybe we've made a mistake. Uh, some people might say three or four, that may be not enough. Some might say 10 or 20. What about, you know, thousands? Um, I mean, shouldn't you have a little self-doubt? Um, major efforts to validate the LNT have resulted in its discrediting. Uh, alternative models, such as the hormetic model, the biphasic model that I showed you, have outperformed the LNT in head-to-head -head comparisons. I have to tell you that I got, this is very interesting, the, the, um, the threshold model, when I was trying to validate the, the, um, 
harmonic model. I said, I want to see well, how the scientific community, the regular community, validated the threshold models which used for non-carcinogen. I could not find in the history of, of science, regulatory science or science in general, where anybody had ever attempted to validate predictions of the threshold model below the threshold. So I then had to get three or four large independent data sets, have a priori entry and, and evaluative criteria, get independent biostatisticians to work with me. And what we found, we had these three or four large data sets from many different types of endpoints, that actually the threshold and the LNT did not make accurate predictions in the low-dose zone. The only one that actually could was the hormetic dose response model, which was one that was abandoned you know, in the early 1920s for a variety of other reasons more political reasons than scientific. And so when you look at our, our regulatory history, we have an LNT model that was really built upon, I believe, fraud and deliberate deception. We have a threshold model that was never validated, and when validated, failed the validation test. And we have had EPA in existence since 1970, and they have basically done nothing about either one of these things. Amongst all the funding and, and legislative mandates that they've had, and it can lay on other, other regulatory agencies as well, and not just this country, it's the whole uh, world. <coughs> and so, okay, final slide. It's time that the U.S. government and scientific community acknowledge its fraudulent foundation for cancer risk assessment based on the LNT and to place such critical scientific activities on a sound foundation. And I would say that I published on this criticizing NAS, and I did get a response from the now president of the U.S. National Academy of Science, uh, Dr. Cicerone, and, and I brought and I have his uh, his uh, attack on me and my response to him. And, and you can see, you know, who wins the debate. Um, I encourage you to look at it, but also encourage you to ask any questions that you might have.